Hello and welcome to Harvest Church Podcast. Harvest Church is based in sunny Durban, South Africa. We are a family of believers who are passionate about Jesus. We really hope this message inspires you today. I've been doing a series with you called The Best Place to Live, and it's something that we are aware that a lot of society has looked into, and there's a lot of lists out there, and people are always asking that question, where's the best place to live? And the reason being is what I want to speak on today, because today I want to speak about the life you've always wanted. We're wanting to live in the best place to live the life that we've always wanted. And I got the title, it's not unique, it's, uh, I got it from one of John Ortberg's books, and he mentions this, and there's a powerful uh, quote that I'm going to read a little bit later that I pulled out from the book. But as we do this, I want to look at what this world says is the best life to live, and I want to deconstruct some myths around that. Then I want to look at what the Bible says is the most excellent way to live fully fulfilled and fruitful. And then I want to give just a couple of practical tools and handles that we can apply to, to make sure that we're living in and living out of that place. So we're going to start in Scripture. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open up. Otherwise, we're going to put it on the screen. You can put your safety belts on because in church today, we're going to read a chunk of Scripture. Can you believe it? Matthew six twenty four to 34. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, and here it's going to get into the better part. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? And we're going to see what the importance of that is in the next few verses. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? I want to change the phrasing here and say, you are way more valuable than them. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. I was dressed in amazing splendor in the last few weeks. I got to go and do a dedication in the hills of Bavaria, the, the Alps, the Black Forest, and the clearing before a little chapel called St. George's, and I was kitted out in lederhosen. There was a splendor there, but here it says, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans, or non-believers, run after all of these things. So it's saying they have that pursuit after those things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them. You've got a heavenly Father who sees value in you. He knows what you need. And so this is what he says you need to do. But seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness. It's not trying to say seek your own righteousness, what you can attain in your own strength. It's saying seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, because when you find his righteousness, you find everything that he's made available in and through his life. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. 
Each day has enough trouble of its own. I want to say this, do not worry about tomorrow, but what are you focused on and what are you in faith for today? Because that's really where we need to focus. That's where we need to be checking our priorities. What's unfolding today? Are we living the life that God has called us to, empowered by His grace to, to step into the fulfillment and fruitfulness that is ours in Him? As we do that today, it unfolds in taking care of the tomorrows and eternity as it unfolds beyond that. And so I, I was reminded um, of a, when I was flying back from uh, Germany of a series I used to watch. There are not too many good movies being released these days due to COVID, so I went to some of the old series, and there was one that uh, I never really got into. It was, it was an Australian uh, series that was done by someone by the name of Peter Rees, who was a television producer, and he had this idea that he would take the pervasive, well-entrenched cultural beliefs that were being established today and scenes from movies and cliches and things that we were taking to be truth, and he would test the basis of that reality. You know what that series was called? Mythbusters. There were 17 seasons of it. I never got into it. I'm going to go back and get into it. But um, really what he was wanting to do is he was wanting to take these things that had become like myths and to say, can I bust them, or are they plausible, or are they actually confirmed through the tests? And he'd have a, t uh, a team that would go out and test these different theories. The one that I saw was to do with bullets and water. And, you know, often we, we imagine, you know, if someone's shooting at us, what are we going to do? I'm going to dive in the water, but if they can take a couple shots, I'll have to go a couple meters down. The good news is you don't have to go too many meters down. Because what they discovered is that it was a myth that bullets could travel meters underwater. They could only go, the force was lessened, and they could only travel about a foot and a half. Listen, don't test it at home, but, but this is what they said. And, and uh, I like this idea because here's the thing. The Bible is all about busting myths. The Bible is all about coming and, and revealing where there lies and revealing what is truth. And it takes the beliefs that are deeply rooted in our psyche, in our culture, in humanity, in our friendship circles that we have chased after, that we've embraced. It takes those and it asks the question, is there any basis to this reality that we believe in? Is there any reality in it? And so that's what the Bible does, and there's a, a classic book that I'm sure that's not at the top of your reading list, it's not at the top of mine, it's by an author named Eric uh, Auerbach, and it's called Mimesis, and in it he says this line, this is just what I want to bring to you, he says, the Bible, uh, the, sorry, the Bible constitutes an absolute revolution in world literature. The Bible constitutes an absolute revolution in world literature. Here's why I say this. Up until the point of the Bible, everything that was written presented the world in the way that we wished it would be. But when the Bible came around, it presented the world the way it really was, the way it really is. It was busting these myths, it's saying this is the reality, this is what we need to be aware of. And so here's the, the beauty as we look at that. It's this provocative, prophetic kingdom life that we call to live. We get to live in the truth that sets us into freedom. When you look back at Israel, Jesus, I mean, sorry, when you look back at Israel, God would send his prophets, and they would be this uh, prov provocative, confrontational people that would come up against the myths that they were. And that's why when he went to, they went into Israel, they're often dealing with other religions and belief systems that had started to infiltrate uh, the Hebrew faith. And things like idolatry, 
where there was this idea that if you can control God, maybe through your behavior or your um, habits or, or how you engage with whatever uh, understanding there was of God, then you could, you could, if you could control him, it would go better for you. You could determine the outcome for your life. And really, that's idolatry. And that had started to creep in, and the prophets came and they addressed this. Or there was this other myth that started to come in, that really it depended on how much you had, because the more status you had, the more wealth you had, the more significance you would have, and life would be easier for you. I mean, that's one that continues today. And so the Bible comes, and God has always come through the prophets, and we see in the New Testament that, he, that Jesus comes, and he comes to bust these myths. When we look at what he says, he says this, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he said, there was this belief system, but I'm coming to say, this is the reality. And he challenges these things. And not all of them were complete lies. A lot of them were just half-truths. When he says, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit murder. I mean, that's a good statement. That's not a complete lie, but it's not a full truth, as we'll see in a moment. You've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. I mean, that's also a good thing, but it's not a full truth. Because you see, the problem is the extent to you that you believe that what your spirituality is and what your relationship with God is, is determined by your behavior modification or regulation. It's going to mean that you're living distant to the reality of what God has done in you. That there has been an inward transformation, a regeneration, and realizing that you're a new creation. That the old is gone, the new has come, and living from that place. And so it's true that, yes, we shouldn't do those things, but what's more true is that we should know that there's a fight going on in our thoughts and in our hearts for what God has said over us in terms of our identity and our destiny. And when we start living true to that, right believing equals right living. Have you heard that before? Right believing results in right living. And so there's something about a deeper truth that's not a half truth, but it's a complete truth about what he's doing inwardly. And so Jesus came and he was myth-busting. Jesus came and he was an enemy to the status quo. I mean, when you look in regard to the established ways of thinking and acting and believing and attitudes, Jesus says in the midst of all of that, he says, enough. He says, you've said you can't love a Samaritan. Watch me. He said, you have said you can't sit and eat with, Samarit I mean, with uh, sinners. Watch where I'm sitting. What are we ordering? Jesus says in the midst of all of the status quo, those things that we have believed, the things that we have embraced, as I said earlier, that have caused us to become hypnotized and immobilized and ineffectualized because we've been believing a bunch of lies. In the midst of that, he says, enough, watch me, because he's modeling something different and he's living out a truth that's destroying all the myths and the lies around him. So why do I want to share that today? Well, let me answer my own question. I believe that there's um, that culture is telling us that we need to get a balance to our lives. We need to live a balanced life, and then we will be living fulfilled and fruitful. But I don't really believe that when I look at Scripture. I see a different picture that's revealed. And so I want to ask, is this balanced life, is it um, confirmed? Is it plausible, or should it be busted? So let me just bring a definition of what balance is, if we can put it up on the screen. Thank you. This is a definition of balance. It is a point of equilibrium between two or more countervailing forces. It is, a, if you need a thesaurus and a dictionary, don't worry, I did as well. It is a point of equilibrium between two or more countervailing forces, meaning two or more opposing forces. 
So you've got forces that are pushing down, forces that are pulling up, forces that are twisting you sideways. And at some point in that, it's the perfect point where you find balance. That's what it's saying. It's neither going this way or that way, but the opposing forces hold you in place. And so when you look at this, there's this cry in humanity, well, there's this cry, should I say, out of culture, not humanity, as we'll see a little bit further, but this cry of the culture today is saying, we need this thing called balance. We need it in our life and in our family and in our relationships and in our recreation, and we need there to be this balance where there's this lovely equal poise that we find ourselves in the midst of. When I was in uh, Bavaria, they had this amazing carousel, and it was uh, beautiful how in the midst of this forest you saw this carousel and all the pieces move and it goes around so sweetly and nothing, all the kids were on it and nothing clashes or bangs or hits into anything else. It's perfectly weighted. And, and there's this, this thought in, in culture today is we need everything to be perfectly balanced and nothing clashing. But I don't believe that is a, real, a reality. I believe it's a myth. We're going to see why. But when we look at that, I do want to say that balance does exist in nature. We're aware of that. How many of us are scuba divers or have done diving before? A couple of us. So you'll know, and I don't. I know it through reading, that uh, what you want to achieve when you do scuba diving is this thing of neutral buoyancy. It's when you feel the pressure that's pushing on you by the water and pushing you down uh, meets the pressure of the air that's in your, your vest or in your tank, or wherever it might be, that is pulling you up. And when these uh, come to the exact right measurements, you find perfect balance and you've res uh, achieved what's called neutral buoyancy. And I mean, that's amazing in nature. But here's the problem. We're looking at a, a picture in nature and seeing it as a metaphor for life. And that's not really uh, what life works out as. When we look at life, there are three things that we can see why this concept of balance seems to be a bit mythical. The first is this. Balance is impossible to sustain. Not attain. Balance is impossible to sustain. And the second is, balance is not even desirable when you look at it. And we'll see that in a moment. And thirdly, balance is not biblical. So let me start by the, saying balance is impossible. I say it's impossible to sustain because uh, when you look at balance, it's a static image. They call it suspended animation. It's where things come into this place where if you perfectly balance, nothing's moving. And animation literally means life. So it's suspended life. It's like this um, freeze frame picture where nothing's happening. And that might be great for a moment, but it takes energy to stay there. Let me show you a picture of balance if we can put it up. The first picture. I mean, that is amazing balance. How about some couple goals, people? Leanne, what are you thinking? No. You know what? We might attain it for a moment, but to sustain it is going to be hard. Balance you can attain, but sustaining it's a totally different thing. Let me show you another picture. These two are twins, Vietnamese twins, and uh, they got the Guinness uh, record for walking. They were able to not only attain, but sustain it for 90 steps but they couldn't do it for more than that. Now, in that, they said it took years of practice, there were injury, there was damage, and even if just the wind is blowing too hard, everything comes crumbling down. So to sustain balance in your own strength, when you're talking about what culture and balanced life should look like, well, really, what we're seeing is it's an impossible thing. And often we think in this sort of way, we think with these clauses, if only, or as soon as, if only, 
or as soon as, then we'll have balance in our life. Let me give an example. If only I had more money, then I'd have balance in my life. If only this person wasn't in my life, then my life and my friendship circles would be balanced. If only I didn't have this job, or if only I lived in that house, then I'd have balance. Or the other clause is this. As soon as I'm done with this season of my life, then I'm going to achieve balance. Or as soon as these three weeks go by and that crazy thing is all handled, or I've sold that piece of property or whatever it might be, then I'm going to achieve balance. And what's happening is there's an authority that's being derived from this if only and as soon as that's causing us to live in this perpetual delusion. And when it's going to end? Because this idea of balance is impossible. The second one is this. Balance is not even desirable. You think, George, you're crazy. I mean, culture's ingrained this in me. Balance is great. I want to say it's not even desirable when you look at the truth of God's word and it sets you free to see a kingdom picture. Let's look at uh, that quote I was mentioning from um, John Ortberg's book, The Life You've Always Wanted. It says this, if we can put it up. The paradigm of balance simply doesn't capture the sense of compelling urgency worthy of human devotion. It is largely a middle-class pursuit. Oh, that's a bit of a painful one. It lacks a notion that my life is to be given to something larger than myself. It lacks a call to sacrifice and self-denial, the wild, risky, costly adventure and uh, adventurous abandon of following Jesus. There's something about what that life must look like that doesn't look like balance. Ask hungry children in Somalia if they want you to help them achieve balance. And you'll discover that they're hoping for something more from you. And I believe, and I do believe this for each of us, and I believe that deep down you are hoping for something more than just achieving balance. So even if we could attain it, and even if we could sustain it, would you want to is the question. Let me read that starting Sentence again, the paradigm of balance simply doesn't capture the sense of compelling urgency that is worthy of human devotion. Isn't that an encouraging statement, a challenging statement, but one that causes you to think, now I want to I live that sort of a life. You see, balance is not desirable, but here, here's the last uh, point I want to bring just before I finish with just some biblical pictures of an excellent way to live. The last one is this. Balance is not even biblical. This worldly idea of balance that we hear spoken about in culture, it's not even biblical. If you look at it, can you find one person of consequence in Scripture who lived with balance? I mean, look at King David. And here's a man, do you think when you think of him, oh, he lived neatly and perfectly and pleasantly in balance? No, you don't. I mean, he was in caves and he was ruling kingdoms, but it was said after him, he was a man after God's own heart. There was something about him. But when he lost sight of that, his whole life seemed to derail. But he was a man who was in hot pursuit of something. He wasn't living neatly balanced. He was pursuing all that God had for him. When you look at Anna in the Gospel of Luke, she was a woman who was in her 80s, and she was day and night at the temple praying, waiting for the Messiah to come. What would our culture have told her? It would have told her, maybe you should get a prayer list and just take the one slot. Don't be crazy. Don't do all the slots. Don't stay there all the time. If she had listened to them, she would have missed being able to be a first responder and reactor to the to the Messiah, to Jesus coming to the temple and being able to welcome him in a way that he deserves. She wasn't living balanced. She was living in hot pursuit of something greater than her. 
You look at Nehemiah standing on the wall, and he had a promise from God, and he had a dream in his heart. And while he was standing there, men came and said, what are you doing? Come down from the wall. And he, he was saying, why should I come down from this great work to meet with you? There was a hot pursuit in his heart for something more in God. You look at the Apostle Paul, <laughs> his life doesn't look neatly balanced from a, 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 a cultural point of view of what balance should look like. Let me, let me uh, define this for you. John Ortberg, in that same book, he describes it like this. Imagine going to a time management consultant, or you could say an executive coach or a life coach. Imagine going to one of them, and this is what he would say to Paul if the Apostle Paul was with him. Paul, if I look at this time chart, I think that you'll agree with me that your spiritual life is doing pretty well. But vocationally, your tent making has seriously fallen off. I mean, this has led to some downsizing in your financial portfolio. Let's take a look at your time log and just see where this has gone wrong. And Paul would answer 2 Corinthians 11 verse 24. Here's my time log. Five times I've received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a day and a night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers. Danger from bandits. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers and sisters. And toil and hardship. Through many sleepless nights. Hungry and thirsty. Often without food. Cold and naked. And then Ortberg writes, can you imagine the expression on the time management consultant's face? What do these lives cause us to look at when we look at these heroes of this faith, the people of consequence who were living in hot pursuit of all that God had? They would say, forget this world's picture of balance and go for magnificent obsession. Pursue magnificent obsession. Live your life gloriously lopsided. See, balance is mostly a middle-class pursuit. It's not a Christ-follower's pursuit. And there are three profoundly biblical truths that I want to bring out that transcend our quest for balance. That here's the beauty, I'm going to whisper it. They actually bring balance into your life. Let me mention it. The first is this, biblical pursuit. This is the more excellent way, as Scripture reveals. The need for focus. We can put that on screen. The need for focus. This is what Scripture says. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Get your focus right. If you're wanting to live life, the life you want to live fruitful and fulfilled, get your focus right. Don't seek the money thing, the housing thing. Don't seek that which everyone else around you is running after. But make your focus God, His kingdom his righteousness, and all that he has made available, then everything else will be taken care of. When we look at David and Nehemiah, when we look at Anna and the Apostle Paul, as we've spoken about them, you wouldn't look at their lives and call it balanced. Yet they lived with a fierce, intent, sharp focus that defined them and made them distinct from others around them. And this is where the Apostle Paul says this in Philippians, this one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind and pressing on. You see, he's got to focus. Straining toward that which is ahead. I press on to take hold of the goal, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus Christ. You see, there was the sharp focus, and he was in hot pursuit of the kingdom. He was in hot pursuit of the righteousness made available to him that he could live in the fullness of all of what that meant. 
And that's where he was choosing to lean into and live out from. So we need focus and you need center. You need to be centered in Christ, in his crucifixion, yes, but also in his glorification because there's resurrection life that's available where you get to live in him, but his life gets to live in and through you as well. There's something about living centered in him that centers us to be a kingdom people. And Paul says, for me to live as Christ, there's something about, there's something dynamic happening. Let me explain it a bit further from Galatians 2 verse 20, the passion translation. It says this, Paul speaking, my new life is empowered by the faith of the Son of God who loves me so much that he gave himself for me, dispensing his life into mine. I get to live in Christ as the center, but Christ's life gets to live in and through me as well. His life is dispensed in me, his grace, his favor, his ability and capacity that goes way beyond what I can do in my own strength. So let me bring a picture of what this focus looks like because it's different for every person as they, as they journey this personally with the Holy Spirit's leading. If you've got kids who are really young right now, what does seeking the kingdom look like? I want to say the kingdom is happening right there where you are pouring your life into your children. That's where the kingdom is happening. That's where you are getting to outwork all that God is wanting to do to bring fruitfulness and fulfillment in your life. But don't use your family as the ticket to escape from other things as well because then you're doing your kids a disservice. Because when your kids get to a certain age and you start to say, no, it's only about our family and it's about nothing more, what you're doing is you are stopping them from engaging with a kingdom that's advancing in neighborhoods and schools and communities and cities and nations. So when you've got small kids, pour into them. But as you raise them up, raise them up to be those who realize that there is an advancing kingdom. And we don't want to live neatly balanced in the middle in a household. We want to be caught up on the radical edge that's breaking into every area of society that we get to touch and we get to see God's life come to. So believers, we call to be focused on the kingdom and rooted, centered in Jesus Christ. Now I want to say this next line and I want to say it as an invitation for what we have in Jesus, not as a condemnation for what you don't have. So please hear me. If you're not a kingdom person, and if you're not a Christ-centered person, your life can be failing even when the world thinks you're winning. When you're not pursuing the kingdom, and you're not taking hold of Jesus Christ for all that he's taken hold of you, your life can be failing and you can be feeling unfulfilled and unfruitful even when the world thinks you're winning in all those areas. I want to say it's about a choice that we have to come to. If you look at the parable of the two sons, as Jesus tells us, the prodigal son and the frugal son, you've got the prodigal son who tries to take everything that he can and he runs with it and he squanders it all. He's unfulfilled and unfruitful. But you look at the frugal son who stays behind and he does his duty because that's what he's caught up with. And he cleans what he needs to clean and he does the farming and he gathers the milk and he does all the duty he needs to do. But at the same time, he's also unfulfilled and unfruitful. Why? Because they're failing, because they haven't sought, they haven't shifted their focus from themselves to pursue the kingdom and to pursue Christ, to live focused and to live centered. So my challenge is we need to be those that are choosing. And here's the thing, when you do that, when you choose to pursue and focus and seek the kingdom and his righteousness, living the life that Christ infuses us with, even when from a worldly standard it might look like you're not winning, you're winning where it matters most. You're winning where it matters most. So we need focus, 
We need to be centered. And lastly, I want to finish with this. We need to find rhythm. You need focus, you need a center, and you need a rhythm. And this is where it gets personalized. Let me explain the rhythm, this kingdom rhythm. Uh, I want you to grasp it. Let's, if you can put my definition up on the screen, thank you. Rhythm is the motion and the pace that's required to effectively and efficiently go after your goal. Rhythm is the motion and the pace that's required to effectively and efficiently go after your goal. That's what rhythm is. You see, it, it's different in different scenarios. If you're climbing, do you climb a mountain with the same rhythm as you swim with? No, because you'd be falling over that mountain or you'd be drowning in the pool if you use the same motion. Because the thing is, it requires a different rhythm. It requires a different motion and a different pace to be effective in what your goal is in that moment. If you are um, throwing pottery, if you're one of those, I like that phrase, if you do pottery and you're throwing pottery, that, uh, I, I hope I got that phrase right. Otherwise, you're looking at me if you're an artist and you're thinking, this guy needs to uh, stop reading books and get into an actual studio. But if you do that with the same rhythm as you do skiing, you're either going to be falling off a mountain or you're going to be scattering clay all over the room. And so there's a different rhythm that we need to see. And here's how we discover rhythm. Rhythm is required by discerning what is the goal for this moment as I keep my fo focus and keep centered. Rhythm is discovered by saying, what is the goal for this moment, this season, this time of life that I'm in, while I keep my focus of being someone who's seeking the kingdom as righteousness and I stay centered in Christ? What does that look like? It's going to be different for each of us here. You've got to navigate that and discover that in God. You see, when we look at Jesus, he's the best example. Jesus was focused on the kingdom. Jesus was rooted in the presence of God and the reality of the Spirit with him and on him and working through him. And here's the thing, Jesus had rhythm. As we look at this, Jesus had a rhythm. And, and uh, we know that beautiful scripture from the message. I'll mention it in a bit. But he had this rhythm that marked his life. But I want to ask you this question. Have you ever thought about the 30 years Jesus lived before the last three years? What did that look like? He was a carpenter, we know that. Do you think Jesus was kingdom-focused as a carpenter? Or was he only kingdom-focused when he got to the, the age of 30 and the three years of ministry? No, he was kingdom-focused the whole time. But what does that look like? It was a different season, season, different rhythm to when he ministered for those three years. I want to say the rhythm that he lived by was what we read as we started in Matthew 6, verse 33, uh, 33 onwards. It was saying, I'm not worrying. I'm not getting caught up in the pursuits of culture around me. I'm not doubting you, God. I know that I have value. I know that there's importance. I know that you've called me that as I start to seek you, you take care of the rest. So even as I'm working with this wood, as I'm shaving, as I'm sanding, as I'm shaping as I'm getting splinters and I'm doing all of these things, I'm doing it focused on the kingdom, seeking your righteousness centered in your life and your presence. And I know it's going to outwork in a rhythm that's going to bring you glory. You see, there was a rhythm about him and what he was do doing. Let me ask you another question. Do you think he was God-centered while he was living those 30 years before he got to the three years of being in ministry? Absolutely. He was living in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He was enjoying relationship with the Father. And then here's the last one. Do you think his rhythm in the first 30 years of life was the same as his rhythm in the last three years of his ministry? No. It looked different. There was a different way that it outworked and he engaged because he was saying in this moment, what does this rhythm look like? That while I stay focused on the kingdom and centered is going to achieve the goal.
And what it was is the Lord was building relationship there. So don't judge yourself on other people's rhythms. Don't look around and think, well, there's that rhythm that I don't have. Concentrate on what God is doing with you and in you as you stay focused, as you stay centered, and as you stay discovering the rhythm that he's called you to live. Here's what I love as we look at the rhythm of Jesus. When he did get to those three years, I mean, he had three years to save humanity. I mean, what, what would your rhythm look like in that moment? He's got three years to save humanity, and here's the thing. Did he ever seem busy? Did he ever seem frenetic? Did he ever seem hurried? And yet there were people around him that as he was passing out, they were hurried to get to him. The blind man in the Gospel of Luke, he calls out and he says, Jesus, help. And there were those that were leading the way. What an interesting phrase. Those that were leading the, the way. They were trying to determine the rhythm of Jesus. And they were trying to hurry him to the next moment. And they said, be quiet to this blind man. You know, we've got to go. You're interrupting our speed and our pace and our rhythm. And Jesus turned to minister to the man in that moment said, I want to talk to him because he's moving in the rhythm of the kingdom, focused, centered, knowing what the Lord requires of him, knowing how to move in an unforced rhythm of grace that instills value, that treasures people, and that brings everything to them that they cannot achieve themselves because as the kingdom advances, it's a kingdom of bounty and abundance that spills over and over and advances and overwhelms and overcomes and brings blessing wherever it goes. He was never too busy, and he was never too hurried. So I want to finish, and I want to ask you to ask yourself this question. Two questions. Ask yourself, this moment, am I focused on the kingdom and seeking his righteousness? In your work, don't say, have I got a life balance in my work and my recreation and my relationships and all that. Don't, don't ask that. Ask yourself this. Am I seeking his kingdom? and his righteousness in the midst of all those things. Ask yourself another question. Am I centered in the person of Jesus and in the presence of his Holy Spirit? Not only knowing the presence of the Holy Spirit, but living present to his presence. Is that happening in my life right now? Because I want to say that discovering your rhythm is anchored in those two. When you start to get your focus right and you start to live centered, you'll start to see there's a rhythm that comes. Here's the challenge. If you stand on one leg, you know, you, you're quite static and you can maintain balance, hopefully, not me necessarily. If you, you can move, but it's hard to stay balanced. There's a lot of work going on. But it's amazing that can happen when you move, just start to move. Still on one leg. But I'm going to undo everything I've, I've said. You see, there is a balance, but it's the rhythm that brings balance. You've got to get your focus right. You've got to be centered. You've got to get a rhythm, and you're going to have a kingdom balance that's going to bring stability and an anchoredness to others around you as they're able to take hold of you for what you've taken hold of. So the reality is, as you live for the kingdom, centered in Jesus, you'll find your rhythm, and you'll live the life you've always wanted. It's a kingdom life, and it's a life that doesn't only bless you, but it blesses all around you. Let me pray. Father, I want to just pray for us as we gathered here that even as I've shared these things, Lord, that there wouldn't be a sense that somehow we've got to conjure this up or make it happen or do it in our own strength or strive harder or if only or as soon as that happens, then it'll happen. I thank you that it's already happened, that we aren't defined by our past failures or behavior, but we're defined 
by, by what you've said to be true of, of us, Lord. And as we start to seek you, and as we start to seek your kingdom of abundance and lavishness and uh, extravagance, as we start to seek that first, and your righteousness that you've blessed us with, that we get to receive, that we receive everything else as well. And I pray that, Lord, as we start to understand that and we start to live in the life that you have given us, in you, Jesus, that your life starts to infuse us and move through us, that there will be a capacity and an ability to live like we haven't lived before because there will be a new rhythm to us and it will be a kingdom rhythm. And I thank you, Lord, that it's unforced, but it's rhythms of grace. Grace upon grace, favor upon favor, blessing upon blessing, and life that leads to eternal life, not only in quantity, but in the quality of it. I declare that over each one of us, every individual, every family, every household, as we, as we just stand together in your name and just declare that we love you and receive everything that you want to bless us with this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, and together we say, amen.